it's all part of this kind of giant mechanism mechanism mm -hmm. where we need to slow the economy without hiking interest rates to the point of economic doomsday. Mm -hmm. So how do we do that? And I think the markets and the Fed are going about it in a way that will accomplish the goal with minimal damage. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a you know a 20% drop in the S&P 500, a 30% drop in the Nasdaq, a 30% in the Russell. These are big drops, yep. but they're not catastrophic drops. If the Fed were to hike rates dramatically and go absolutely hog wild on that and inflation were to still run hot, we could be looking at 60, 70, 80% drops across the whole market. So. Mm -hmm. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, please be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, how are things going today? Uh, it's a good day, Aaron. We uh, hit the bear market last week, barely. S&P 500 came within a fingernail of touching that bear market, and it's been pretty uh, bouncy ever since, and up, up, and away, up and to the right, and that is very reminiscent of late 2018, early 2019, so that gets me pretty constructive on near-term price action, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later. Yes, and I'm definitely looking forward to getting into that and all our topics in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, electric vehicles, cryptocurrencies, the metaverse, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. A lot of things to cover, so let's dive right in with inflation. Uh, the CPI numbers for April came out last week, uh, and it looks like uh, essentially what has happened is that it's lower than what it was, but it's higher than what we expected. Um, there's a lot of talk that a peak might be in. Uh, do you think that this is the case? And if so, what does this mean for yields and markets? Um, yeah, so I definitely think we are at peak inflation. We talked about this before. Um, the reason we're at peak inflation is has a lot to do with base effects. So the year ago comparisons getting a lot tougher. Uh, throughout 2021 and in the early parts of 2022, we were lapping against inflation a year ago. That was basically sub 2% consistently and regularly. Um, now that we're getting into the second quarter of 22, as we go into summer and we get into the back half of the year, we're going to be lapping against 4%, 5%, 6%, 7% inflation numbers. So it's much harder to put up a red hot year over year inflation rate when the year over year rate a year ago was, you know, very, very high. So there are some base effects in there. That's why you're seeing some deceleration in headline inflation. That's why a lot of people think we've reached peak inflation. I'm one of those people. <laughs> but that's not all that significant, right? Mm -hmm. Because if inflation is decelerating simply because of base effects, that doesn't really mean that inflation at its core, in its true sense, is hurting everyday Americans less and less. Mm -hmm. um, so what you want to see actually is deceleration in the month over month rates. You want to start seeing inflation decelerate from March to April to May to June. You want to see those 
inflation rates decrease and go down over time. You are starting to see semblances of that, but not in a way that I think a lot of people wanted to see. Mm -hmm. So is inflation decelerating? Yes. Has inflation peaked? Yes. Does that mean inflation is going to go away anytime soon? Probably not. Mm -hmm. That what the April CPI numbers told me is we're at peak inflation and we're on the other side of this hill, but this is not a steep hill. This mm-hmm. is a very gradual hill and it's going to be a painstakingly slow process to get back to, you know, roughly 2% inflation rates. All right. Is that accomplishable by the end of the year? Probably not. Is it comp- accomplishable by the end of 23? Probably. So I think we won't normalize inflation. We won't get back to a normal inflation rate until late 23. So you're talking another 16 18, maybe even 20 months. So peak inflation, yes. Decelerating inflation, yes. Still got a long ways to go to fight this battle. What does it mean for markets? Well, you're seeing the 10-year treasury yield start to top off, right? We had this massive shoot from 1.5% to 3% in a matter of months. We hit our head on 3%. We went a little bit above it, got to around 3.1. Ever since then, we've cooled off and we've been range bound on the 10 year from about 2.8 to 3, kind of bouncing between those levels. So long as there's stability there, which I believe there should be given the decelerating inflation trend, so long as you get two or stabilization in the 10 year from 2.8 to 3, that should provide valuation support for stocks to head higher on the assumption that earnings remain strong. So that's why we're starting to get pretty constructive about recent price action. Not out of the woods, not at all, but the near-term outlook is definitely improving thanks to peaking inflation and stabilizing yields. Now you talk about that in order for, we wanna see this deceleration happen month over month. Is there a scenario where you know we go back up in uh, June? Um, yeah, there's absolutely that. Uh, the situation when that could happen, you're seeing oil prices yesterday, they were pushing towards 115 a barrel. Mm-hmm. Um, if oil does start to march higher, um, and we haven't been marching higher, remember, we shot from 90 to 130, pulled back, and have been range bound between 95 and 110. About if mm-hmm. we start to march higher from here and we start to take out 115, 120, 125, 130, we start inching towards 150 by the summer, which is definitely possible because summer tends to be a seasonally strong period for oil. Demand is very high because everybody's traveling during the summer. So if that does happen, you could see a reacceleration of inflation trends in June, July, and August. And that would be a recipe for disaster for the stock market because what's also happening during the summer is you got the Fed meeting in June, July, and August. So if we get 50, 50, 50 basis points each time out of the Fed and inflation still running hot, then that's when you're going to see that 10-year, this 2.8 to 3 consolidation. It's going to break out above 3. It's going to make a push towards 3.2, 3.3, 3.4, 3.5. In that scenario, equity multiples have to compress a lot further. And that's where you see stocks at 3,600 on the S&P, 3,400, 3,200. Those are very realistic outcomes in the event inflation does become a bigger problem uh, in the summer. And this deceleration trend that we saw emerge over the past two months fails to continue into June, July, and August. Now, you also talked about how inflation impacts the 10-year yield. Can you also talk about how it impacts growth and how growth also uh, correlates to that yield? 
Yeah, so one thing we are definitely seeing is uh, we got a consumer spending report for April and it was very strong today. So um, that that's sort of a, a positive data point. But I believe it is the anomaly and not the norm or the exception and not the norm. Uh, inflation tends to eat away at consumer spending and enterprise spending. That when you're paying more for certain goods that you cannot live without, which is what we're seeing right now. We're seeing inflation in the things that we need to live. Oil. Uh, gas prices. We need our cars. We need to travel. We need to go out and live our lives. That's a necessary expense that we're all paying up for right now. Food. You're seeing a lot of food inflation. There's a food crisis globally and you're seeing food supply shortages. You're seeing food prices go up. Obviously, that's something we can't live without. So where you are seeing inflation is in these core items that you, I, and everybody else must pay for over time, right? So it's not like we can say, oh, I'm going to skip groceries this week or, oh, I'm not going to drive my car this week. We have to keep paying for those things. Because of that, the share of our wallet that now go goes towards discretionary spending get takes a hit. It mm -hmm. goes lower. So you're definitely going to see consumer spending slow down, I believe, in the summer and the second half of 2022. You're also seeing this play out at the enterprise level. Now, we were of the impression that enterprise spending trends were going to remain resilient in the face of inflation because normally they do. But there's another factor here, which is a derivative effect of inflation, and that's that inflation is causing treasury yields to move higher. The higher treasury yields go, the more Wall Street focuses on short-term profitability over long-term growth. The more Wall Street does that, the more management teams reorient their focus and their priorities from spend to grow to lean up and boost profits and boost margins today. So you're seeing a bunch of big tech companies who for years and years and years saw their stocks do nothing but go up and up and up and up and up. Now those management teams are seeing their stocks drop 40%, 50%, 60%, 70% in some cases. And that's Wall Street telling them stop spending so much. So what are they doing? They are cutting back on spending. You're seeing a bunch of tech companies go through hiring freezes, announce um, big cost cuts, reduce their capital expenditures. You're seeing those announcements happening now. So what that means is that enterprise spending over the next probably 12 to 20, 12 months is going to take a hit as well. The setup then is slower consumer spending and slower enterprise spending, which should lead to lower earnings per share growth out of these companies. Mm -hmm. Now, as we've talked about before, Aaron, right? Mm -hmm. What is a stock price? A stock price equals earnings per share times the PE multiple. So if earnings per share are probably going to trend lower because of lower consumer and enterprise spending at the hands of inflation and a de-risking of management priorities, if that happens, then you need the PE multiple to go up to offset that. And that's why everything hinges on that 10-year treasury yield right now. Because mm -hmm. the 10-year treasury yield determines the PE multiple. If 10-year treasury yield goes higher, PE multiple goes lower. Mm -hmm. If 10-year treasury yield stabilizes and just doesn't go anywhere here, that provides cushion for the PE multiple to go higher. So right now, it really all hinges on that 10-year treasury yield, unless for some odd reason, consumers decide to spend a bunch more money in 2022 and enterprises do too, in which case enterprise or earnings per share is going to be much larger than most people expect. But I think the chances of that happening are very small. So that's why my focus right now, 
is on the 10-year treasury yield, on equity multiples, and the trajectory of the 10-year treasury yield is going to tell me the trajectory of stocks for the rest of 22. Gotcha. Uh, you talked about um, enterprise is cutting their spending. Um, mm -hmm. uh, shifting gears a little bit, one of the things that we haven't touched on in a few weeks is uh, insider buying. So is this affecting how uh, insiders are seeing their own companies and buying up their own stocks? Yeah, so I definitely believe that um, you're, you're continuing to see a lot of insider buying. Uh, okay. Spotify CEO came out and just bought a bunch of shares. Um, Shopify CEO went to Twitter and said he's going to buy $10 million worth of his own stock. A VP at Shopify said he liquidated a huge portion of his family savings to buy Shopify stock. So you are SoFi CEO just came out and bought more stock last Friday, uh, about $250,000 worth. So you are seeing insiders continue to buy this dip pretty strongly. And I believe that is because these management teams believe in themselves mm -hmm. to cut expenses for this brief period of time ride through this volatility and once the storm passes as all storms do grow like wildfire on the other side so these management teams are expressing confidence in themselves to do just that and that's why they're buying the dip now interestingly enough what you're seeing today which is unique in terms of insider buying is insider buying volume mm -hmm. has uh spiked to a two-year high normally when insider buying volume spikes, you also get at least a little spike in insider selling because mm -hmm. it just basically means insiders are buying and selling more, right? It's just a week mm -hmm. where they're doing a lot of both. But right now what you're seeing is insider buying has spiked to a two-year high mm -hmm. and insider selling has simultaneously dropped to a two-year low. So it's not like insiders are just out in the market playing around. They're buying, but not selling. They're taking a page from the Luke Lango playbook. <laughs> the, the, um, the last time that happened where you had this massive insider buying surge accompanied by a massive insider selling drop-off mm -hmm. was March 2020, right around the bottom of the COVID-19 pandemic-driven sell-off. So uh, it's a pretty bullish indicator i like to follow insiders i think they're the most knowledgeable people about their companies and so the fact that they're buying and the fact that they're not selling does get me pretty constructive about the stocks they are buying this is not a broad call on the whole market you mm -hmm. have to look at what stocks they're buying they're buying sofi right mm -hmm. the ceo is going all in there spotify shopify you're seeing heavy inside docusign you're seeing heavy insider buying in a lot of these names, Duolingo has some big insider buying. So you got to find the stocks that they're buying. And those are the ones that I would say, hey, this is a good time to double down, triple down, quadruple down, anchor in those names. Um, if you're aligned with the insiders, that's a pretty good bet. So this isn't something where we want to look at the look at this as an indicator for the market as a whole. This really is a stock by stock basis. I mean, you can. You can definitely look at it as an indicator for the market as a whole. There's, I mean... 
Definitely. As I said, the last time insider buying spiked and insider selling dropped like this was March 2020. That was a bottom for the market as a whole. So you definitely can do that. But what I preferred to do is to be more specific. Don't have a shotgun, have a sniper. And <laughs> snipe in on exactly which stocks they are buying. Because I want to be aligned with the insider that's actually buying that stock. So I like to have the sniper here and find the individual opportunities as opposed to just the broad market call. Also, the upside potential in the individual stocks is a lot better than just the broad market. So that's another reason why I like to focus in on those individual stock opportunities. So then how much should investors read into this activity? Quite a bit. Um, I, I always tell people, if you don't pay attention to anything about the markets mm -hmm. and you only listen to one thing, you had to you know, put a gun to my head and ask me, what's the one thing that I would look at? If I couldn't look at anything else, it would be mm -hmm. insider buying. Okay. I would look at insider buying above all else because insider buying is the people who run that company saying they believe in that company and not just saying it, but putting their money where their mouth is. And to me, that is, that is powerful stuff. And insider buying historically, there's a lot of data and a lot of studies that show that insider buying is a statistically significant indicator of positive price appreciation in that asset. So insider buying, how much to read into it? Quite a bit. I love watching insider buying. All right, uh, shifting into our market check-in, uh, the big one, the Fed, and our friend of the show, C.S. Lowe, has a great question. It's a, it's a little long, but I want to read it to you right now. Uh, yep. Luke talked about it all comes down to the Fed. Uh, what if the market, quote-unquote, disagrees with the Fed? For example, when Fed recently raised rate by half a point and added 75 basis points is not what they're actively considering. The market didn't like that and reacted terribly. While Luke suggested we should have more faith in the Fed, uh, in the Fed team ran by very, very, very smart people, the market seems to show that the Fed has got it all wrong this time. What are your thoughts? Um, great question. I think the market isn't saying the Fed's wrong. The market's trying to intimidate the Fed, and they're going to succeed in that. Okay. Uh, the market is telling the Fed has to hike rates. They have hmm. to. Like there, there is no way out of the situation. <laughs> If they don't hike rates, inflation is going to forever be a problem and it's, it, things are going to get really ugly. Mm -hmm. So let's not debate how we got here or why we got here. That's not useful to us getting sure. out of here right yeah. now. The Fed has to hike rates. Wall Street doesn't want them to hike rates all that quickly because, hey, um, I like free money. I like, you know, loose policies. I like the rich valuations in the markets. And quite frankly, if the Fed were to hike aggressively, as we talked about before, mm -hmm. that would absolutely crush the stock market. So the reality is, is that the Fed and Wall Street kind of want different things. And at the end of the day, they're going to wind up in the same place. Mm -hmm. Here's what's going on. The Fed knows damn well they know damn well that they cannot hike rates all that much uh -huh. because the U.S. government is sitting on $30 trillion of debt. U.S. consumers are sitting on record amounts of debt. U.S. corporations are sitting on record amounts of debt. Other countries are sitting on records amount of U.S. debt. Everybody is uh -huh. sitting on records amount of debt. So... If the Fed were to significantly and rapidly hike interest rates, 
that would pop that debt bubble all over the world and it would cause the global economy to crash in a way that would make the 1930s seem like nothing. It would be absolutely dramatic, catastrophic, and maybe the end of capitalism. Okay. The Fed knows this, though. Mm -hmm. The Fed knows this. So what the Fed is trying to do is talk a super tough talk and scare the living crap out of Wall Street, out of companies, out of consumers, so that the economy naturally slows without them needing to hike interest rates. Mm -hmm. So they talk a super tough talk in March, April, May, probably into June. They talk about these... 50 basis point hikes, they actually execute a couple of them. They say, we're a long way from neutral. They talk this super tough talk, mm -hmm. knowing that that tough talk is going to, one, hurt the stock market, which is, two, going to cause consumers to start freaking out about the economy, and three, cause enterprises to slow their spending. We talked about the effect of this just about 10 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. So that tough talk indirectly leads to an economic slowdown because consumers stop spending as much out of fear that the Fed might send the economy into a recession. Enterprises stop spending as much on that same fear. So you start to kickstart this natural economic demand slowdown without the Fed really needing to actually hike rates all that much. So what the Fed is banking on is that their tough talk mm -hmm does a good job of slowing the economy so that when it comes to actually hiking rates, they don't have to go as quickly as they plan. So they go 50 here, they go 50 there, then maybe they go to 25. And by the end of the year, they're not hiking at all because all that tough talk basically killed demand. Um, and so that's what the Fed is doing. Mm -hmm. And Wall Street is like, okay, we'll play our part in this. Our part is we need to send stocks lower to, to scare uh, consumers to scare enterprises to slow the economy. It's all part of this kind of giant mechanism mechanism mm -hmm. where we need to slow the economy without hiking interest rates to the point of economic doomsday. Mm -hmm. So how do we do that? And I think the markets and the Fed are going about it in a way that will accomplish the goal with minimal damage. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a you know a 20% drop in the S&P 500, a 30% drop in the Nasdaq, a 30% in the Russell. These are big drops, yep. but they're not catastrophic drops. If the Fed were to hike rates dramatically and go absolutely hog wild on that and inflation were to still run hot, we could be looking at 60, 70, 80% drops across the whole market. So mm -hmm. We're choosing a lesser of two evils here, mm -hmm. and I do believe and I continue to have faith that the Fed is going to do the right thing. Their tough talk's gonna work. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna have to hike rates as much as what they think as what everyone is talking about. And that's gonna cause the economy and stocks to rebound in, in a pretty healthy way in the back half of twenty two and, and into twenty-three. Um and does Wall Street disagree with them? I, I really don't think so. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't. I think Wall Street's just playing their part in this mechanism of trying to slow the economy so that we avert economic doomsday. So as much as, as again, nobody likes to see this drop that we're seeing, it's the natural reaction to kind of normalize what we need to do in order to stabilize the economy. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, I mean, capitalism is just a, a cycle of boom, bust, boom, bust, boom, bust. That, that's what it is, right? And the key to it is to 
mitigating the size of the boom so that you mitigate the size of the bust. You know, right. so your cycles, if this is a sinusoidal function, is just, you know, it's very shallow. You don't want these giant, yeah. giant cycles, right? That's where people just get completely wiped out and confidence in the system gets destroyed. So right now we need a bust. We're getting a bust. Mm -hmm. the, the, the purpose of the bust is to make sure that it's not that large. It's a necessary evil to embrace this bust. Um, and if we kind of don't want to embrace it, then that's where we could get a, a much larger bust. That could be much worse in nature in terms of stock price decline. So um, I'm pretty confident on what the Fed's doing. I'm pretty confident on Wall Street's reaction to it. Um, and then the price action that we're seeing right now, again, it just feels very much like late 2018 into 2019, early 2019, where stocks struggled throughout 2018 when the Fed was hiking rates. Wall Street was disagreeing with the Fed in their rate hiking path. Wall Street finally got fed up with it in late 2018 and sent the S&P 500 crashing. December 2018, we came within a fingernail of um, a bear market, 19.7% off all-time highs or recent highs. And then we just reversed course and went crazy in the other direction. And then the Fed stopped hiking rates in early 2019 and actually started cutting rates in late 2019. That cycle... I, I think there's a pretty good chance it repeats in 2022, 2023. And if it does, the price action I'm looking for is, okay, on Thursday afternoon, last Thursday afternoon, <laughs> the S&P 500 fell 19.92% off recent highs. So a, a sliver of a fingernail <laughs> from a bear market. Yeah. And then it reversed course. Mm -hmm. It jumped 2% into the close. It jumped another 2 to 3% on Friday. And it jumped big on Monday. Um, or not on Monday, sorry. On Monday, it kind of chopped around. And then today, it's, it's jumping again. So we're now seeing this rally off that bear market. What that probably leads to is maybe leads into a June or July meeting where the Fed doesn't stop hiking rates, but they go from 50 basis point hikes to 25 basis point hikes. And that supports a further rally in stocks as 10-year treasury yields continue to stabilize on the expectation of um, less rate hikes than one would than what is being priced in today. So I think that's a trajectory stocks follow over the next few months, if so, and, and a few years. If so, then we are kind of in this bottoming process and stocks should be ready to rip higher from here, especially in the hyper growth world. Those stocks led the, led it on the way down. They're going to lead it on the way up. I'm pretty confident we're, we're in the midst of what could be a sizable rebound. Now, this could all change mm -hmm. if the Fed, again, if inflation doesn't decelerate and the Fed has to combat that inflation. In that scenario, everything I just said... <laughs> Out the window, because that's where you can get another meltdown in stocks. And that's why I really want to anchor myself in the hyper growth sector right now, mm -hmm. because everything else feels kind of washed out. Mm -hmm. Like 20% S&P 500, 30% NASDAQ, 20% uh, Russell or 30% Russell. Like those are declines. Yeah. But it's not capitulation. It's not mm -hmm. washout. So if the 
worst case scenario emerges here and inflation doesn't slow down mm-hmm. and the Fed hikes more aggressively than expected and 10-year treasury yields soar. Then in the summer, those things that aren't washed out are going to get washed out mm-hmm. because this is not like this only impacts hypergrowth or this only impacts tech. No. Higher interest rates, mm-hmm. higher treasury yields, lower earnings per share growth, that impacts the whole market. So things that aren't as washed out are going to get more washed out in a worst case scenario. But look at the hyper growth sector. That's as washed out as it was in 2001, which was the worst washout mm-hmm. for hyper growth stocks ever well, since the 1930s, really. So you're talking 70 to 80% off all-time highs. The sales multiples over there are 1x to 8x, depending on the gross margin profile. You have insider buying in that sector. So it feels like even if a worst-case scenario emerges in the markets, hyper-growth stocks aren't going to fall that much farther. The risk-reward profile there, mm-hmm. your downside is very limited because they're already so washed out. <laughs> Yet your upside is enormous yeah truly enormous so that's why i continue to say what you have to do right now is anchor your portfolio in the highest quality hyper growth stocks your favorite hyper growth stocks and just ride the trend Mm -hmm. just ride the trend for now uh well going into a specific hyper growth stock uh i want to talk a little bit about rivian uh ford uh sold another seven million shares of rivian uh, I know we touched about it on it last week. They, I believe, we uh, they initially they sold 10 million shares, seven million. Again, not a huge deal in uh, the 100 million shares that they uh, own. But uh, what should we read into this second sale? And again, what do, what happens if Ford continues to sell? Yeah, so Ford selling Rivian, shocker. Mm-hmm. I mean. It's like Burger King selling uh, steak at McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Shocker. I mean, you're, you're not going to bet on your competitor. You're going to yeah. bet on yourself. The, the Ford-Rivian partnership, uh, that stake was established when Rivian was going to make electric trucks for Ford, when Ford wasn't going to make an electric F-150 uh-huh. itself. That's when that was established. Times have changed since then. Ford's strategy has changed. They're now making their own EVs. They're not betting on Rivian as their horse in the EV race. So why not sell? Like that selling is just Ford saying, we believe in ourselves more than we believe in Rivian. If they weren't selling, that would be a massive red flag for Ford. Uh That would be Ford's management team. That'd be the equivalent of insider selling to me. That would be Ford's management team saying, we are not good enough to believe in our trucks Mm -hmm. to beat Rivian's trucks. Mm -hmm. So if they weren't selling, I'd say, gosh, you got to get out there and sell all your Ford stock right now because (laughs) the old management team doesn't believe in it at all. Yeah. The fact that they are selling means they believe in themselves. That's good. It means nothing for Rivian. Mm -hmm. It means absolutely nothing for Rivian, in my opinion. It creates selling pressure, Mm -hmm. which will drive the stock lower in the near term. But that's just noise. I think Rivian has a very bright future as one of the probably – three or four EV startups out there today that turns into a massive, massive auto giant um, by 2027, 2028, 2029, 2030. So long-term bull on Rivian. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably want to wait for the price action to improve a little bit for getting into the actual stock. But if you're a long-term investor, I'm sure buying here is is a fantastic strategy. And I do like the stock long-term. 
So again, even if Ford were to back out entirely, not a big deal for Rivian in the long term. If I told you Burger King had a 10% stake in McDonald's and they were selling that steak, would you really care? No. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, all right. Uh, well, shifting into another specific uh, company, Twitter and Elon, this is actually the first time we've kind of touched on this, but some interesting things have kind of happened in the last few days. Uh, Elon tweeted on Friday, uh, Twitter deal temporarily on hold, pending details supporting calculation that spam fake accounts do indeed represent less than 5% of users. And then later that day, he uh, tweeted a follow-up saying still committed to the acquisition. Um, kind of as a result or just the way things are going, the stock price was down to around $38. Um, and it seems like the market isn't reflecting what the, uh, share purchase is uh, supposed to be at $54. Um, is this kind of still a negotiation or is this Elon trying to get a better deal or is this just, you know, Elon being Elon? That $54 takeover price is absolutely not going to happen. Okay. That is, that's a pipeline dream. It's not going to happen. Um, listen, I love Elon. <laughs> Pioneer, visionary. He's done a lot of good things for the world. Mm -hmm. But sometimes he just says things without really considering them. Mm -hmm. And he does things without really considering them. And oftentimes there is blowback that he navigates successfully through. And in this situation, he will personally successfully navigate through this, but will he end up actually acquiring Twitter? I'd say no at okay. this point. Given the string of developments recently, it just looks like what he tried to do is he came out with this massive acquisition price that mm -hmm. everybody would be excited about that he knew Twitter's board could not reject. Mm -hmm. So he would get them in the bag. And then he found some excuse, the bot thing, mm -hmm. to back out of the deal mm -hmm. and renegotiate at a lower price, knowing that he's already got the management team in the bag. And so he's trying to now negotiate them with them in the bag down to a lower price. Will he be mm -hmm. successful? Maybe, maybe not. At, at a certain point, probably at the point that Elon wants to buy them is the point at which Twitter wouldn't want to sell. Mm -hmm. So are they going to get to an agreement? I don't know. It's really choppy. It's really muddy. Um, as far as the stock's concerned, I would just stay away from it right now. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't get involved. You know, there's going to be some ARB opportunities here and there, maybe. But let, let the traders chop that one up. Let's go find some long-term investment opportunities. <laughs> the value creation here, the value creation potential is minimal. 10, 15% maybe, considering you're going to get a reduced takeout price now. So it's really not worth the risk and the uncertainty to get involved there. Uh, shifting gears into our crypto check-in, uh, there was a huge collapse last week uh, with yeah. Terra. Um, what's called a, uh, they have what's called an algorithmic stable coin. Um, before we kind of get into what all, what happened with that last week, can you talk a little bit about the difference between uh, normal crypto coins and stable coins? Stable coins are supposed to be pegged to something okay. for stability purposes. Um, and oftentimes stable coins are pegged to the U S dollar. So there's a lot of stable coins out there that are pegged to match the value of the U S dollar. One stable coin equals $1 and they use some collateral assets, uh, to 
ensure that stability. Uh, the Terra wipeout um, was because, well, no one really knows exactly why, but our theory has to do with the fact that their collateral was, they were massively under collateralized for that stable coin. Mm -hmm. So when things started to get uncertain, it created a massive wipeout. And that under collateralization is a warning signal to other stable coin projects out there that they need to, if anything, be over collateralized for their stable coins. Gotcha. So again, $40 billion wiped out in days. Um, I, you know, we, we talk about crypto a lot and, you know, you're, you're optimistic, but cautious, I think is the best way to kind of describe how you yes. look at uh, cryptocurrency. Um, again, you talked a little bit about what happened. Uh, again, is this, does this mean that all of crypto is in trouble? Uh, is it, does it mean we stay away from stable coins? Do we stay away from algo stable, stable coins? Uh, again, what's, what's the advice to investors when they see $40 billion just gone? Uh, don't invest in hype. Okay. Don't invest in hype. The, the crypto markets are full of hype. They're absolutely full of hype. The underlying technology, blockchain, is revolutionary. There are certain projects out there, Ethereum, Cardano, that are using that revolutionary technology in revolutionary value additive ways. There are other projects out there that are misusing this revolutionary technology simply to make a quick buck, or even they think they're using it in the right way, but they're being beat by a company or a project that's using it in a better way. Mm -hmm. So there is just a lot of froth and complete BS in the crypto markets. Does that mean you need to stay away from them? No. It means that you need to get in them and be hyper selective because blockchain cryptos, they are the future, but 99% of the coins in the market today won't be around in five years. They just won't. That's what happens with new industries. You get a massive surge in interest in the industry, which causes a massive surge of participants in the industry. Then you get this trowel of disillusionment where mm -hmm. everyone's like oh wait is this really the future you get massive consolidation and then the few that are left standing at the end of that consolidation are the ones that carry the torch into the future that's going to be ethereum that's going to be cardano there are a couple projects out there that are absolutely fantastic long-term investments mm -hmm. there are also 99 percent of them that are absolutely tragic long-term investments <laughs> Terra showed us that just because you're see the Terra thing was not unique that there was a 99.9% .9 drop in a coin in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. We saw that with squid games. Remember squid games, that mm -hmm. epic rug pull. Yep. So we've seen these rug pulls happen before, but they've always happened way out on the risk curve with mm -hmm. the small obscure altcoin projects that, a lot of people haven't heard of and most of us never invested in or even touched. Mm -hmm. But what the Terra wipeout showed us mm -hmm. was that this value destruction can happen even in the biggest of cryptos. That just because you're a top 10 or a top 20 or a top 50 does not mean you are protected from consolidation, does not mean you are protected from value destruction. You can't rely on size as a competitive moat. 
you have to rely on quality as a competitive note and size does not equal quality. So don't be fooled by something going up 500, 600%, 700% and becoming a 40, $50 billion project. Don't be fooled by that. Always pay attention to the underlying fundamentals of that crypto project itself, of that blockchain project to see if there's a long-term compelling investment thesis there. Again, Ethereum has that. Cardano has that. There are dozens of other cryptos that have that. Mm -hmm. And then there are thousands of others that don't. So get in the crypto markets, but be selective. This is your warning signal. Do not take a lot of shots on gold. Take a few, again, not the shotgun, be the sniper. Mm -hmm. You got to be a sniper in the, in the uh, crypto markets today. So when you talk about the longevity, you're talking about quality. Is there a scenario where quality isn't enough and we could see something this happen to a coin like Ethereum, like Cardano? Yeah, no, I mean, Ethereum could easily break down to 1400 or 1000 or even 400 on the on the charts. If you look at the kind of what's going on there, it's forming classic head and shoulders pattern. Looks like it could collapse. Absolutely. But that's kind of the price of admission for cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. I think Ethereum can be, you know, 10, 20, 30 times its value over the next 10 years. So if that is true, and if you truly believe that, then if Ethereum breaks down to 1400 or 1000 here, okay, take that punch because you're going to get back up and you're going to make a lot of money over the next 10 years in that project. So I would say that you don't want to go all in with cryptos right now, mm -hmm. but if you have a certain, you know, five or six super high quality projects that you are following that you're already invested in, you know, start nibbling here. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin showing support at 30, take some nibbles. But save dry powder in case Bitcoin breaks down to 20, which is very possible. <laughs> then deploy a little bit more dry powder there. What you have to do is you got to keep this reserve and then just keep deploying a little bit of dry powder on every big wipeout in the crypto markets. I think that's the way you got to play it right now. But only deploy that dry powder again in really high quality cryptos and probably you're going to want to stick to some larger cryptos too. This again, this is not the time to go out there and just start taking a bunch of shots. Mm -hmm. that, that's not what you want to be doing in cryptos right now. Find the ones you really like, anchor around those and ride through the storm in those high quality cryptos. Again, it's not dissimilar from hyper growth stocks, mm -hmm. right? Anchor around portfolio consolidation, anchor around the strongest ships to ride through the storm. And then on the other side, once the storm clears up, go through the, the carnage. You know, oh, look at that boat. Look at that boat. Then start taking shots. So right now it is dark and stormy out there. So get in the ships that are going to allow you to survive that storm. Don't go and drown in a freaking little canoe. Okay. Get on the Titanic. Titanic's a bad example. because. <laughs> Tara was Tara was the Titanic. Um, <laughs> get on some giant, you know, I don't know, Norwegian ship or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't know my boats, Aaron. I don't it's know my right. boats. <laughs> get, get on a big ship that is not going to sink and ride yeah. through the storm. Subsequently, <laughs> take your shots on the other boats. Well, this kind of dovetails into our first fan question from Mia T, uh, who asks, Hi, Luke, uh, when will Bitcoin actually step up and act as this hedge against inflation as a digital gold and a go-to in unstable, <laughs> rocky times? Yeah, no, not, not this cycle. Sorry, mm -hmm. Mia. Not so this cycle. The follow-up is how low can Bitcoin go in this bear market? Yeah, so, I mean, we technically believe Bitcoin is 
not destined, but very likely to break down to 23. It is showing some strong support here at 30. That's okay. bullish. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we broke 30. We got 29, 28. We kind of got in the 27 range. That sort of action makes us think that a breakdown of 23 is, is probable. So we think that, you know, let's say there's a 40% chance Bitcoin holds here at 30. And there's probably a 60% chance it breaks down to 23. So uh, we have the levels. We have 23, 17, and then 10. Those are the mm -hmm. ones we're looking at. Uh, we think 10 would be the final wipeout if we ever get there. But we do think that it's not really safe to say Bitcoin has bottomed here at 30. It could, but there could be more downside ahead. As far as the inflation hedge goes, um, I really want to believe that at some point in the future, Bitcoin will be that. Mm-hmm. I really do. As a person who believes in cryptos, believes in blockchain, I really want to believe that Bitcoin will be the digital gold one day. But that day is not today. The market <laughs> has made that abundantly clear. And let's not fight the market. Okay. The market has said this is not a hedge against inflation. This is a risk on asset. So let's treat it as a risk on asset and not as a hedge against inflation. Again, I hope one day we get to the point where it is the hedge against inflation, but that's that's not today. At what point do we get there to the point at which Bitcoin stops appreciating in value so quickly during bull markets? Mm -hmm. uh, you can't have an asset that appreciates in value quickly in short amounts of time and still be a hedge against inflation. You don't get the best of both worlds. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You got to choose one or the other. So mm -hmm. we got the massive appreciation in the bull market over the past two or three years. That means we weren't going to get the hedge against inflation. So that's kind of how it operates. The point at which Bitcoin starts stabilizing and stops shooting up, you know, 10, 20, 30 percent um, in a month or 100 percent, 200 percent, 300 percent in a year. At that point in time, that's when maybe the market will come around to understanding Bitcoin as digital gold. And that's a hedge against inflation. But we are many years, if not decades away from that. So let's not count on it right now. Okay. And our last question again comes from our boy CS Low. Uh, also, it was reported that with share prices falling at this rate, many are pushed to force sell due to margin calls, hence causing further sell-offs and drops. Is that true? And if so, what could possibly stop this cycle? Yeah, absolutely. So Chase Coleman, uh, manager of Tiger Global, uh, one of the most successful hedge funds of the past 20 years. Chase Coleman was a hedge fund manager rock star. Um, that fund is down about 54% so far in 2022. Uh, they've been smacked. And it's because they were levered on long tech. So there probably was some margin calling going on there. And that just has collateral effects throughout the market, ripples throughout the market. And you get kind of panic selling. Um, so that's definitely happening. That is definitely happening right now for sure. Uh, when does this stop? Once that leverage is gone, once you've kind of, once capitulation has happened and that's why I continue to go back to this thing, get in the stuff that's already capitulated, get in the mm -hmm. stuff that's already washed out. Yeah. There, there are, there are probably still some, uh, a lot of leverage out there on a name like Apple or a name like mm -hmm. maybe Microsoft. Or a name like, maybe not on Coca-Cola, but there's a lot of leverage out there on some of these larger cap names for sure. So if the carnage does spread, those names are the ones that are liable for larger pullbacks. Whereas if you look at stuff like SoFi, stuff mm -hmm. like Opendoor, 
I, those things are so washed out, man. They're so washed out. They are so beaten up, yet their companies are performing fantastically. Uh-huh. Open Door just reported like 600% revenue growth. They're crushing it. SoFi is absolutely crushing it. They just raised their full year revenue guidance. So those companies are absolutely crushing it. Their stocks are absolutely wiped out. I think that if there was any margin calling going on, which there probably was, that that's done. Uh-huh. Those stocks have capitulated. And even in a worst case scenario, further downside looks pretty limited. Um, and that's why I really like that sector. I like that corner of the market. I think the risk reward profile is significantly more attractive in those names than it is anywhere else in the crypto markets, the stock markets, the bond markets, anywhere in the financial markets at this point in time. Well, as always, another great discussion. Uh, I, you know, today was a lot. Uh, but any last words before we wrap? Um, Aside from that, you're going to learn about boats. Man, and you got to take care of your talk. I need to learn about boats. Yeah, dude, that hurt. I was a nasty bite. <laughs> kind of kind of been talking weird ever since then, too. I'm nervous to bite it again. <laughs> um, no, dude, I, I, I think everything is good right now. I think the price action mm-hmm. is improving in the market. I don't think we can call bottom and say it's all over. But I think we can say... We're due for some near-term uh, support here, a little relief rally. Whether or not that continues or returns into a downtrend uh, depends on the course of inflation throughout the summer and depends mm-hmm. on the subsequent trajectory of the of the Fed throughout the summer and the subsequent trajectory of Treasury yields throughout the summer. So let's watch those three things. If they shape up in a bullish manner, this relief rally is the beginning of a big bull market. If they don't, this relief rally is going to go back into a downtrend. At some point, you are going to get a reversal and a U-turn back into a very strong bull market. But that may not be here. That may not be now. Having said that, it feels like the hypergrowth corner of the market is so washed out that... Uh, even if we do get a further bear market descent, downside in those names is pretty limited. Gonna preach what I've been preaching. Get in those names, stay with those names. Great risk reward profiles. <laughs> well, great. And thank you everyone for listening. Please, if you have any comments or questions for Luke, leave them in our comments section. We'd love to hear your feedback on what topics you'd like us to cover and see if we can answer any of your burning questions like Mia T and CS Low. Until then, please don't forget to hit like and subscribe, and we will see you next week. Bye, all.